Hey y'all, you're listening to In the Corner, Back by the Woodpile. I'm Spun Counter Guy. Thanks for stopping by. Richard Blackett is a professor of history at Vanderbilt University and a historian of the abolitionist movement in the U.S. He's written several books, including Building an Anti-Slavery Wall, A Thousand Miles for Freedom, and The Captive's Quest for Freedom. But today, Professor Blackett comes on the podcast to talk about his work, Making Freedom, the Underground Railroad, and the Politics of Slavery. So my first question is, I would like your opinion on a narrative that I hear a lot about what caused the Civil War. So, you know, actually the roots of it, the seeds of the war were present even back at the American founding, that there was this tension both between the founders with each other and also within their own individual minds over whether humans could be considered property. And especially as to the question whether slavery is in direct conflict with the Declaration of Independence, you know, all men are created equal, et cetera, et cetera. And so like the first 70 or so years of American histories is a series of compromises that averts a breakup of the Union temporarily, but inevitably is just putting off what would happen in you know, 1861. So what becomes the final straw, so to speak, is the 1850 compromise in which lies the Fugitive Slave Act, which forces northern states to aid Southern slave masters in recapturing their runaway slaves. And so I guess in a way that pushes a lot of Northerners closer towards seeing that the slave states are a force that they can no longer be compromised with. Uh, and that, of course, would bring about the war. So after having said all that mouthful, what say you? <laughs> <laughs> um, there, there's an element of truth in all of that. But one of the qualifiers... Uh, that one has to keep in mind is that the first fugitive slave law occurred in 1793. And that was a law, in effect, that was drawn up to put into force the commitment that is in the Constitution that escaped slaves would be returned to their owners. So it's there in the Constitution, for Section 2 uh, of the Constitution. The law of 1793 put that constitutional requirement into effect. But if you take the long view of the causes of the Civil War, that you have to address the question of why that law of 1793 didn't lead to an open clash between the sections. And I would submit that the difference between the 1793 law and the 1850 law is that slaves entered the debate in 1850 by escaping in significant numbers and that the black community was communities and their abolitionist supporters were organized enough to resist enforcement of that law open resistance of enforcement to the law so that is what makes 1850 critical more so than 1793. now I don't think in and of itself the law of 1850 broke the Union. 
but it created such tensions that Southerners were able to look at the law and its failure and Northern states' failure to enforce it. Or that's what they argued, and that's not true if you look at the evidence. But also look at the, the way the enslaved themselves by running away and the black communities in the North by resisting enforcement. Southerners could look at that and say, aha, you are not enforcing the law uh, and you are simply breaking the constitutional requirement. That is what makes 1850 so different uh, than anything prior to, prior to that. Well, explain to folks that may not know what makes 1850, what gives that law more teeth than the 1793 version? Well, it did a number of things. One, it violated basic judicial principles. It refused to grant trial by jury. Two, there was to be no habeas corpus rights. Three, because of the lack of those two principles, it meant you could, in effect, pick up a black person who was free all his life or her life and force that person to prove that they are free. Now, if a person has always been free, they have no free papers, right? So if you ask the person, well, prove that you're free, what is the person going to say? They can do nothing about it. So the, the, the idea is that not only did the law was more draconian, 1850, than any previous efforts, but it also undermined these basic principles of fairness in a judicial system. And by the way, if I, was, if I were picked up as a slave, as a, a, a suspected fugitive slave, I could not, I could not testify in my own behalf. So not only could you not prove a negative, but you couldn't yeah. even attempt to, to prove it or disprove it. No, because all the, the person here in the, the, the proceeding had to do was look at the supposed order for arrest that is, always, that is issued in a southern state uh, and say, does the person described in this order of arrest look like the person in front of me? And that was it. You had no representation. No lawyers could come and argue your case. And finally, let me just add, under the terms of the law, the federal government paid for the rendition of fugitive slaves. Think about that. Out of the coffers of the federal government, and not out of the pocket of the, the slaveholder, but out of the pocket of the federal government. So on a, number of, on a number of levels, this is a very, very unfair law. Possibly one of the most unfair laws that has ever been passed in this, in this country. In addition to that, sometimes you hear it said that a lot of Northerners, white Northerners, who would say, like in theory, they were against slavery. But living in the North, they really didn't have to put their money where their mouth was, so to speak. But with this 1850 law, now they are forced by law like to assist uh, sla yes. slave catchers, or, or else they're in trouble. And yes. you also hear Northern states start to talk about states' rights. How is it that the Southern states' rights are infringing on our rights? Yes. Uh, talk about that a little bit, because I don't think we hear about that as much. The northern states started passing what were called personal liberty laws, which required, in some cases, trial by jury for people suspected of being fugitive slaves. 
and they introduced a number of other kind of requirements that had to be covered by the law before a slave, a suspected slave could be returned. Uh, and this only complicated the political crisis uh, facing the country, because now you have states that are openly defying federal law and states that are openly questioning constitutional requirements. So that becomes a, that becomes a real crisis. But the point is, these many of these states, these laws had clauses in them. For instance, Pennsylvania's personal liberty law uh, said you couldn't hold a suspected fugitive slave in a state prison uh, prior to them being returned. At a time when there were no federal prisons, where do you put the slave? So, so this becomes a real question. And you know, if you put them up in a hotel or something like that, then you expose them to the black community who are snooping around trying to help them to escape. So you had tensions, and this is this is what makes the law and the resistance to it so in, so interesting is that you have open defiance. People are saying, "Hell no, not here. You won't you won't take a person back." And you have you have cases in which people go into the courthouse when the case is being adjudicated and take the the suspect out from under the noses uh, of the local authorities. So yeah, there's I guess there's a couple famous incidents of this yeah. where I know Harriet Tubman was involved in one where in broad daylight they just went and got the accused. Yes. That was in Troy, New York. Yes, yeah. Yeah, she was dressed as an old woman. My lord, delivered Underground Railroad, and of course their allies in the abolitionist movement. How did the 1850 law change their operations? Well, they had to become more organized, uh, obviously, because now you're resisting a law that requires you to aid in the recapture of a person. In a way, you have to be more subversive. Uh, you have to be more clandestine. Uh, you have to make sure that you intimidate people. Uh, you have to make sure that you have a group of lawyers who are willing to at least ignore the law and impose and intrude into the proceedings in the return of of, uh, of slaves. The, the black community, for instance, in Boston, did things in that, that just drove the authorities to distraction. They followed slaveholders throughout the streets. They intimidated them in their hotel rooms. They brought suits against them. Uh, in the case of uh, William and Ellen Craft in 1850, they brought five suits against them, each of them requiring bail to be set at $2,000. Now, that is, that is organization on a level that we haven't appreciated in the past. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think that's really what makes this so critical. You mentioned in your book, Making Freedom, that the dangers to the Underground Railroad wasn't solely from white slave catchers or their Southern sympathizers, but sometimes uh, within the black community themselves. And in fact, you tell one story about a white grocer who developed a romantic relationship with a <laughs> slave named Rachel, who yeah. eventually would betray the man as, as, soon as she, yeah, as soon as she got into Canada. Can you talk about these kinds of occurrences? 
I highlight that one because uh, any good book has sex in it. <laughs> so I, I, I only did that because, you know, it has a real hard tug-in kind of conclusion because the man, the poor man, so, fell in love with Rachel and sold out all his stuff and then she got to Canada and, and she fell in love with somebody else. Uh, and her slaveholder followed her all the way to Canada to try and persuade her to return. And she said no. But what she did is she gave him the letters uh, that her paramour had written her. And uh, and the, the slaveholder used those to prosecute the man. So he ended up in, in a coal Kentucky prison uh, until he was finally freed. But after about four years. Wow. So by that time, he's a broken man. Mm -hmm. both in heart and in spirit. But there were some uh, black folk in, in who um, aided and abetted in the recapture of slaves because there was a lot of money involved. And <laughs> you could bribe people uh, to do things that normally they wouldn't do. But they paid a terrible price if they did it. Mm -hmm. Because A, they couldn't remain in the community after they've done it. And that is assuming they got away with their skin intact. So there are lots of incidences of people just being beaten terribly for, for, for doing that. Right. I know Frederick Douglass tells a story about somebody, I think in the Baltimore community, I think it was, where someone found out he was working with the slave catchers. They had a church service where the, the pastor basically pointed the finger at the guy like, here's the Judas and yeah, yeah. yeah, he barely got out of his life. But there's always been that issue in, in history of in any oppressive societies. Why do members of the oppressed actually join in the oppression of their own people? Mm. And that is one of those uh, issues that I don't think can, will ever be adequately resolved. Hello, the dragon for the old man is waiting for Carry you to freedom Follow the drinking gold If there's a central villain in your book, Making Freedom, I think, it's uh, this Democratic Party commissioner guy named Richard McAllister. Yeah, oh yes, yeah. from Harrisburg. Yes, so tell us why he was a threat to those attempting to get their freedom. Well, he had the law on his side. And because the law required no legal procedure other than a hearing, people could go to McAllister, slave catchers could go to McAllister and say, look, I'm looking for this. I'm looking for Fred or Doris or whoever it is. Uh, McAllister could get his police to help in the capture. Or alternatively, the slaveholder can capture the slave and bring them to in front of McAllister. And McAllister at the, had his forms filled out in advance uh, so that he could remand people back into slavery. Uh, he was deeply committed to enforcing this. He's a Democrat in this, in this period, and the Democrats tended to be more partial to slavery. And so the McAllister, by, uh, within three years of assuming his office, he was a total pariah in his own community. He was basically run out of town because <laughs> nobody, even his vestry in his church, didn't want him. He had become so committed to this law that he upset people in his own community. Yeah, 
McAllister is a piece of work. Did he benefit from it financially, do you think, personally? No, there were some incidents where he worked with slaveholders and may have gotten part of the reward. Mm. Uh, but but um, there was, there's no other way to benefit from this because he was hoping after he left Harrisburg that the Democratic Party would recognize his work and it, it would result in, in some kind of political appointment in Washington. He never got it. He ended up in Kansas. You tell a story about the Reverend Samuel Green who was who sentenced uh, to 10 years for owning a copy of Uncle Tom's Cabin. Yeah, um, yeah. yeah. Can you talk about the South's censorship of abolitionist literature, um, their opening and reading of private citizens' mail? How, how did they legally accomplish this or get away with it? And also, can you just tell us about uh, some more facts about Samuel Green? Well, we don't know much more about old Samuel Green. Samuel Green's son was a slave, uh, and he escaped to Canada uh, before... In a couple of years before Samuel Green was was caught, uh, and between Samuel Green and his son, they had established a kind of uh, system for getting slaves out uh, of that part of Maryland. The authorities could not nail him for these things. They raided his house, as I say, and they found all sort of all, all kind of evidence apparently that he was involved but they they couldn't pin it they couldn't pin it on him legally mm. so what they did is they they used the fact that he had a copy of uncle tom's cabin and in all southern states uh, in this period it was illegal laws were passed making it illegal to have abolitionist literature there were not laws that were regularly enforced but there were laws that were there on the books to use when when it was necessary. And this goes back all the way to the, the 1830s when abolitionists began to flood the South with abolitionist literature, with pamphlets, with newspapers, etc., etc. And, and laws were passed that made that illegal. That's the, the sort of genesis of, of, that, of that whole movement. So, so when Green was caught with the, the cop, copy of Uncle Tom's Cabin, he was done, as they say. Mm. They had the evidence against him, not for participating in in, in helping the enslaved to escape, but in uh, on this issue of of abolitionist literature. So, I mean, did, did anybody ever challenge that censorship in court? Like, hey, this is a violation of the First Amendment? No, because of state law. In that sense, it, you're right. It's it's a it's an interesting question. But if you are caught with subversive li- literature. Your First Amendment rights are not <laughs> up to be argued. And this is subversive literature under the terms of the law. This is a, a law of convenience, eh? Because nobody's coming looking for you, but if you get caught with it, then uh, you'd be in trouble. Okay. I know there's a famous little illustration of, um, I think it was it was done like in, mockery but it was like the the southern postal system it showed the piles of mail laying on the street where the the postal guys are going through it and of course in the background you see a a wanted poster for lewis tappan i think his name was Uh, i don't maybe that was an abolitionist exaggeration that they were looking through all the mail i don't know well no 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 because they said they should open the mail and, and check it out which of course is a violation of federal law you can't open mail the postmaster can't open the mail, so that is a problem. 
but nonetheless, uh, they were under enormous pressure to, to. So what postmasters tended to do is if, um, if mail arrived addressed to a slave, the postmaster would send it to the slaveholder. That's why those letters turn up in slaveholders' papers. Wow, so actually in a way, from historian point of view, was fortunate. Yes, yes, okay. yes. talk about the Underground Railroad accounts as literature, uh, because obviously why slavery was legal, secrecy of who was involved and what was their methods, you know, had to be maintained. And of course, even after the Civil War and the Reconstruction, there could still be some repercussions in certain parts of the country if someone was, had been associated with the Underground Railroad. When did reports of their activities begin to flourish and, and as far as we know, was there any fabricated or exaggerated accounts? Oh, well, anytime you have a movement like that, there would be fabrications. Mm. Uh, but th- you started seeing word of an underground railroad emerging in the mid-1830s. But it, it, it always centered on what people would win once the slave, once the runaway arrived in a free state. And for, for years, for decades, until very recently, our interest in the Underground Railroad has been limited to what happens, what whites and free blacks do once the enslaved arrived in a free state. Uh, one of the points that I argue is that you have to look at the points of departure. And if you look at the points of departure, then you put the, the runaway front and center of the story. Uh, And in addition, it helps you to understand that in the South, particularly in the Upper South, there were people and organizations, when I say organizations, we don't know exactly what they look like, but there were people who were actively, both free blacks and slaves, who were actively promoting the escape of, of slaves. So it's critical to start the Underground Railroad where it supposedly started, which is, the, if you, you could be the eastern shore of Maryland, long before people arrive in a free state. So if you look at the early histories of the Underground Railroad, they're all about what happens in the free states. I see. Go in ahead. the book that you, you're talking about, that I read that little book, mm-hmm. I started every story with a person who is running away. Right. So I could make the point, hopefully that, you know, that's where you need to begin to understand it. As far as all those accounts, I know there's various ones, you know, according to people's regions. The most famous one I know of is the William Still collection. Yeah, right. And then uh, where I live in central northern Kentucky, there's a few floating around. But I guess every region probably has those accounts, right? Yes, yes. We only know about Stills because he published it off in what, 1872, after the war? Mm. But you have to, in order to understand it, you have to look at the local newspapers. Absolutely critical. That is a time-consuming job. It sounds like you've attempted it? 
Well, yeah. Did you see? Did you see my big book, though? I have it. I haven't read it yet. Well, you would see from it. <laughs> it took me about ten years to put this thing together. Oh lordy! Okay. Yeah, because you have to be patient, and I have nothing else to do. I could chase my wife around the house, or I could go to the library and read microfilm, <laughs> or I could, or I could do both. <laughs> no, but that's that's how you have to find it. Uh, because these people, the people who ran away, most of them left no records. So you have to find a way to come up with information on what they did. You close the book with uh, the story from 1897 where both black and white residents of Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, they erect this memorial to former fugitive slaves. One of them was named George Washington. And yeah, well, I, the irony was too much to let it go. Oh, yeah. And the other one, they're not sure about his name. You, you say either his name was Brown or Lewis. But why did you end the book with that account? Years ago, I was doing a, a biography of a man, uh, well, the man who, who was the speaker at the occasion, William Howard Day, who was... Uh, born in, in New York in the 1820s, and who by the, in the last decade of the, the 19th century had become the first black to be elected to a board of education in the North. Uh, so there was, there was a big name in Harrisburg at the time. Uh, so this was, this was my way of commemoration, of showing, of showing that these things had a historical resonance locally. And that you have to go into the local pl places in order to find out the information. Why don't you swing down, sweet chariot stop and let me ride? Swing, swing down, chariot stop and let me ride. Rock me, Lord, rock me, Lord, come and easy. I got a home on the other side. Why don't you swing? If you're still in a history mood, there's In the Corner Back by the Woodpile 221, where Law and Liberty's Brian Smith joins us to talk about religion, government, history, objectivism, integralism, how they can get along, and how they often don't. There's also episode 120, where we get a special tour of Frederick Douglass's home in Washington, D.C., in the process, of course, learning about this giant of American history. In the Corner Back by the Woodpile is produced by A Closet, A Pocket, and A Suitcase. You can find this podcast on iTunes, podbean.com, Spotify, and Stitcher. If you would like to send us some love letters, you can email us at spuncounterguy at hotmail.com. We'll see you next week.